Well, folks, as, as nervous as I feel at this present moment, I do want to give thanks for this opportunity to give my testimony. I thank, thee that I, I thank the night that I stand here as a redeemed soul, and my sole desire tonight, even as I stutter and stammer through this testimony, is that my beloved Saviour will have all the glory, the one who redeemed me from my sin, the one who has me standing here tonight to testify to his glory. Uh, as most of you are aware, my name is Peter McKellen. Uh, I was reared seven, for the first 17 years of my life in a place just out the road called Murfields on a farm. Uh, <coughs> I wasn't born on a, into a Christian home. Uh, I found early life in the farm was just mainly sheltered from the, the things of the world. You were, you were just taken up with making your own fun. I was the uh, middle of two brothers or three brothers, and uh, one, one older brother, one younger. And we made our own fun in those days. We, uh, I couldn't class it as a happy home, but even in them early days, uh, I can remember looking back, even as I was writing this testimony, of evidences of sin in my life. The Bible tells us that, Behold, I was shaped in sin and iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's so true, folks. Even looking back, even though, as I said, it was a sheltered life in many ways in a farm, when you're out in the country, you're basically, we were worked and told to do the, the milking the cows, all them various things. But looking back, you still seen the evidences of sin in my life. The Bible's true when it says that everyone's born into this world in sin. However, even though it wasn't a, a Christian home, there was, there was gospel influences in my life. Most importantly, at the bottom of my lane, there was a little Sunday school. And every, it was a seasonal thing, and every season my mum and dad sent us out to, to hear the gospel. And it was there that I learned that I was a sinner, and it was there that I learned that there was only one way of salvation. Other gospel influences, there was a Kells Gospel Hall on a Friday night. We were sent there, and I was thinking today, if it was an old man, Jim Wilson, came in a blue car to collect us. And I'm maybe showing my age here a bit, but Jim never went above 40 mile an hour, and to get to Kells was an hour round trip. We were up many a country lane, and by the time we got to the Gospel Hall on the Friday night, there was two in the front seat and maybe six in the back, and that was the norm. We were sent there, and I remember very clearly in those meetings, I, I, I had a keenness to learn Scripture, but it wasn't for the right reason. It was because they handed out sweets, and anybody who knows me, that has stayed with me all my life. I have a sweet tooth, and... But on a serious note, I was still learning the word of God. And God's word says, the entrance of his word giveth light. And at 17 years of age, a major event took place in our lives. My parents uh, parted ways. We had to leave the home in secret, as it were. My mum, by this time, my older brother was in Scotland. But my, me and my younger brother, we, we went with our mum into the town and we were so glad in many ways to get into the town. Uh, my mum was a nurse in the Braid Valley Hospital, so we moved to the estate up in the top of the town called Hugamount. And I remember going there on the first night, and we, we got away, and sin had ravaged our homes, folks. There's no other way of describing it. And we got there. We hadn't a bed to sleep in. We lay on the floor the first night. But I remember the next day walking down the town with my brother and just thinking, freedom. But my idea of freedom wasn't the, the, the scriptural version of freedom. And slowly but surely, as, as we embarked basically on a new chapter in our lives, 
slowly but surely, I went more and more towards the things of the world. Uh, however, at that time, I just left school. I attended Greenmount College for a year, and my uncle, who's a Christian man and a wise man, he uh, directed me towards earning some money on a farm outside on Cloak. And the man, Robert Simpson, is a Christian man, a very quiet man, but a man who, even a simple thing like saying grace before he gave we ate our dinner, I was well looked after. If there was a gospel mission come up, he would have asked me to go. And, but at that time, I wasn't interested, folks. All I wanted to do was follow my own ways. I started to live for my weekends. All I, all I could think about was earning money to go out at the weekend. And the Bible tells us that sin will always take you farther than you want to go. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And I was about to find that out, folks, because as I went on in my life, to my shame, I have to say, I got into trouble with the law. I had various appearances in court, but the final one I went to court in was on a, basically a pretty serious charge. And I remember standing with the, the, the barrister that day, and whether he was saying it to scare me or whether it was actually a reality, but he said to me, I says, is there a chance that I could end up in prison? He says, oh, very much so, son, very much so. And I was terrified, and that case kept getting put back and put back and put back. And I believe, looking back, it was God humbling me. I was going to sit before an earthly judge, and he was going to determine my future. At that time, I'd got a job in Michelin, and uh, it looked to me as if I was, I was earning better wages. I was more settled. I'd met my now wife, Heidi, at that time, and Things were starting to settle down, but my past was catching up with me. As I say, that dragged on for a year. It could have been a year and a half. I remember it came and went, and I remember that day sitting, sitting in the courtroom trembling. I wasn't a hard man. I was a scared man. And looking back on that, what a picture of judgment day. There I was standing, guilty, before an earthly judge, and that my warning to anybody here tonight who's outside of Christ, one day the Bible makes it clear that all who die outside of Christ will stand before their heavenly judge, the one who stands now as your, to offer you as salvation, as redeemer, as the one who will one day judge the world. And I sat there, and I was terrified. I, don't, I started to pray even before that. I had whether it was, you could say, was I just using God, but there was a fear in my life, and I started to read the Bible. I started to search. I started to think upon the things and where my life was taking me. I have a friend also. He's actually a brother to the Reverend uh, Thomas Laverty, Davy Laverty, and Davy at this time, was, was, he had been saved a couple of years, and he was out, him and me would have been out lumping, and Davy wasn't really out there to lump. He was out to, to talk to me about the things of God. He was out there to... To witness to me, we were out round the farms and that there, and, and he, he, I remember one Thursday night, he said to me, I was round the age of 26, and I'd spent 26 long years in sin, and David, David said to me one Thursday night, he says, there's a mission on in Tully Darley Mission Hall, he says, we'd like you to go, and I agreed to go, and the night came to go, and Heidi and me had been in Scotland the, the week before, and <coughs> a football match, and I had actually left, it sounds comical now, I had actually left my shoes in Scotland. And David came to the door and he was as usual dressed, he had the shirt and tie on and standing. And I got myself into a panic and I said, and it wasn't that I was trying to get out of going, I said, David, 
I've known about a pair of Gottis, a pair of Airmex. I can't go. But David's seeing through it, and David says, well, don't worry, give me the Airmex, and I'll give you my shoes. So he was going to make sure I got there. But as I say, I went that night, and the preacher was a man, Alan Bartley, and I can't remember a lot of what was said. And the Lord had been working on me before that, and this thought was continuing in my head, how much longer, Peter? Are you going to run on and sin much longer? And where is it going to lead you to? And I remember him speaking on the... He mentioned that night the great white throne judgment. And this, it was obviously the Holy Ghost convicting me, but this awareness that I had no idea how long I had left in this earth. And and, and the world's eyes, I was only 26 years old. I was, I, you could say, all my life before me, but it gripped me that night that I had no idea what a day would bring. And I was terrified, folks. I, I tremble, and I realized tonight I must call upon the Lord. And I did that, folks. I called upon the Lord as best I knew how. I always remember the, the verse that stuck with me in my early years was, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. And while I didn't have a great grasp of things, folks, I was a lost, guilty sinner, and I called upon the Lord that night to save my soul. And thanks be to God, he heard that cry. Because the Bible says, Him who cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You have to understand, I didn't know very much, even though I was sent to Sunday school. But one thing I do know, my life changed that night. My life was never the same from that night. The Bible says, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. And I experienced that in my life. And over the next few months and even years, uh, my appetite for the Word of God, I, I remember opening the book the next day as I read it, and I dawned on me, this book is real. These characters, Moses, Elijah, all these men lived. They're not some make-believe characters. They're men who walked with God. They're men who were born again of the Spirit of God. They're men who were resting on the same Christ that had saved my soul. However, I must, I, I must also say this, that in the early parts of my life, or my early Christian life, I lacked, I'd struggled with a lack of assurance. And the, the main problem being was I had somehow managed to start looking at the... There was evidences of salvation in my life. I wanted to be with God's people, I wanted to be in the house of God. I loved to get to the, the place of prayer, things that I would have run a mile from before I was saved. But I made the mistake of focusing on the evidences of my salvation rather than looking to the one who had saved me. And I sought counsel. I was started coming to this church, and I went and seen Mr. Greer, and he directed me to the book of Hebrews, that having a great high priest, one, and, and we have confidence to enter into the holiest through his merit, and I thank the Lord for that counsel. I also remember, as, I, as this was ongoing, that some, I could have went for weeks and I was rejoicing in the Lord, and then I would, I'd have almost slumped into despair, and, and I would have cried out to the Lord, Lord, if, I, if, I'm, if I'm a false professor, please deliver me from it. Little knowing that that was very evidences of the Lord working in my life. But I remember distinctly one day going into my mum's house, and I pray that this will help somebody here tonight who's maybe struggling you're saved, but you're, you're lacking the assurance. And I remember going into my mum's spare bedroom. I was married by this time. And I walked into my mum's spare bedroom. I can't remember what I was looking for. And my eyes fixed on a little picture text on the wall. 
And it's a verse that has become oh so precious to me. And it's in Jeremiah 31, verse 3, and it says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, and therefore in loving kindness have I drawn thee. And it suddenly dawned on me that that verse was telling me, Peter, it was I who convicted you of your sin. It was I who drew you to myself. It was I who made you a new creature. It was I who gave you the new desires. It was I who have led you thus far. And I, and I rejoiced that day for it suddenly dawned on me that we have an enemy, one who taunts a believer, one who accuses the brother. And yet the Lord was showing me it's I who saved you, Peter, and it's I who will, who will keep you, and it's I who will lead you home. And as I say, I came to, that, I came to this, I was coming to this church now, and I started to serve the Lord when I got here. I helped out in the Friday night meetings. And I'm now a Sunday school teacher, and I have the wonderful privilege of every Sunday telling the young people about the precious Lamb of God and their need of salvation. And that's such a privilege, folks. It's, it's, they, it's something not to talk about ourselves, but simply to point people to the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. As I say, the Lord, the, the, the psalm I was actually going to read tonight is Psalm 23. It talks about the Lord being my shepherd. And the Lord was as my shepherd. And the Lord leads his people. Many a time I've come into this building, maybe with a heavy heart, maybe with something that seems to be almost overwhelming. And these two gentlemen behind me, and I thank the Lord for them, they, they have no idea maybe what's going on, in, uh, going on in my life. And I would have sat down in them seats, and they came with a message that the Lord had laid upon their hearts. And the Lord knew what was going on because he was my shepherd. And I could have sat in them seats maybe with tears rolling down my eyes that the Lord had drew alongside and ministered to my heart. I walked out them doors, folks, and my circumstances hadn't changed. That, that problem hadn't gone away. But the difference being, the Lord had drew alongside and strengthened my heart. And that's what the Good Shepherd does. The Bible says there that he leadeth us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And that's what he does. He deals with the sin in the believer's life. His desire is to make us more like him. The book of Philippians tells us, He that have begun a good work in you will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. And I'm so glad that I can call him my saviour tonight. And I desire that you would know him too. What's my desire for my friends and family, those who don't know Christ, that you would taste and see that the Lord is good, that you would come to know him, him to know his life eternal. Our pastor preached on Thursday night up the town, Christ hasn't come to destroy your life. He's come to save it. It's sin that destroys lives. It's sin that ruins. But it's Christ, your creator, who is able to save you from your sin. As I close here tonight, I want to thank the Lord above all for saving me. And I was thinking of a hymn. And the psalmist says in Psalm 23, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. How can anybody say that? Simply the next bit tells us, For thou art with me. As my Saviour has been with me in life, he will be with me in death. And I thought of that hymn, When I stand in glory, I will see his face and tell the wondrous story saved by grace. And that's, my, that's, that's the, the wonder tonight, that a, a, a sinner like me will one day be in heaven. And why will I be there? I'll be there because of the one who died for me, the one who shed his precious blood for me. The Bible tells us that whosoever was found written in the Lamb's book of life will be in heaven. There's no other ground of acceptance with God. And that's the ground I'm resting and trusting upon tonight. 
I just thank you for listening. Amen. Thank you very much indeed, Nicky, for reading the Word of God. That's the passage I want to turn you to. But before we do that, can I just also, first of all, uh, express a word of thanks to all who have taken part, both this morning and this evening. We've had a blessed day in God's house. It has been a joy to be here and to have the opportunity of gathering. And I want to thank you all for coming along and uh, enjoying the, the meetings today and also uh, again, we thank those who have taken part. It's been great to have the instrumentalists, the little uh, orchestra that we had here on my left, who have gone now to th their own seats for the time that remains. We thank these young people and all who have participated in this meeting tonight. I add my own words of welcome to those already given. It's good to see you all out tonight and to see so many visitors among us. And we pray indeed that you will be blessed in your hearts as you meet around the Word of God, and may I invite you to come any time that you would like to do so, sometime again, return and meet with us here in our church services any Lord's Day. You will indeed be very welcome, and we look forward to having you along on future occasions. Can we just have a word of prayer before we come to the Lord's Word and to uh, the final part of this meeting? Let us just unite in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for Thy presence and for the help given in every part of this service already. And we bless Thee for the reading of the Scriptures, for the testimony, for the messages and song, for the offering of praise by the whole congregation. And now, Lord, we turn to the Bible. We come to Thy Word for this time that remains to us, and we pray that the Spirit of the living God will come down and fall upon us and that He will take the things of Christ and show them to us. We ask, O Lord, that Thou wilt bring a stillness over the whole company. We pray that everything that would disturb or distract would be overcome and that we would have that silence and that peace right through to the very end of this meeting. And so, Lord, bless us, we pray and touch our waiting hearts, and give me power to preach Thy truth. And may the Holy Spirit use that word this evening to reach hearts, to deal with souls. Move in power, we pray. Remember that unseen audience online. We pray that Thy word will also be born to them in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we'll give Thee the glory and the praise. We ask all of this for Christ's sake and for God's everlasting praise. Amen and amen. In verse number 10, the Apostle Paul uses an outstanding phrase. It is that phrase, the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In this instance, the appearing of our Lord that is in view is His first appearing, His birth at Bethlehem. The word itself gives us the English term epiphany. And some of you, maybe in the past, were accustomed to that particular word because it's a word that is often used in different church circles with reference to the birth of our Lord Jesus, His epiphany. And that's the uh, word that is used here and is translated appearing in this verse. The Lord's birth was the appearing of a divine person, someone who was eternally God, namely God the Son, 
but who came and took on to himself our humanity. He was born to save men from their sins, and therefore it was essential, it was indispensable that he would take our humanity. Otherwise, he could not save us from our sins. And therefore, the birth of Jesus Christ was the first and the only time that one of the three persons of the Godhead appeared to dwell permanently in a visible fashion and in a human form. And that, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ, as already intimated. This appearing of our Savior in true humanity was like the dawning of a different day, the dawning of a new day. The original word for appearing actually means to shine forth, and it signifies the fact of being made visible or something being unveiled. And it's a word that reminds us and actually is used of the emergence of the sun at the dawning of every new day. The sun rises, the sun appears, and that brings uh, light on this earth as the sun comes up again for another day as we see things, as we understand things. And this is actually how the first appearing, the first coming of our Savior is depicted in Scripture. We think as well of Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 2, where you read of the Son of Righteousness. And the word Son there is S-U-N, and again, it refers to our Savior, the Son of Righteousness. And the word indicates the idea of an appearing, a shining forth, the sun arising and appearing and coming again for another day. And so we have this concept of the first coming of our Lord being portrayed under that kind of imagery, that kind of language as we have it here in verse number 10. I want to look at that verse with you this evening as well as some surrounding verses just for a little time toward the close of this gospel meeting, this family service. And there are three thoughts that are brought out of this verse as we think about the appearing of our Savior, His birth at Bethlehem, what that meant, what that was, what it brought about, what it results in for those who trust Him. It's all found in this wonderful language. The verse says, "...is now made manifest by the appearing." of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. There are three things here, as I say, I want you to notice. Number one, a revelation. In the first part of the verse it says this, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ. And notice there the verb made manifest. It's a word that also signifies something that is revealed. And Paul's point is that by the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, there was a revelation made. It was the revelation of God's purpose to save sinners. Back there in verse 9, you can see this coming through. It says in verse 9, "...who has saved us." and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest 
by the appearing of our Savior. So what Paul is saying is that in verse number 9, there's a reference to God's purpose to save men from their sins. But in that verse, there is something made absolutely clear, and that is that the purpose of God, the plan of God to save sinners is not accomplished by our works. It says so powerfully in verse 9, not according to our works. That couldn't be clearer. That's something that people need to realize and understand. That if you're to be in heaven, if you're to have eternal life, if you're to be saved from your sins, it won't be according to your works. Rather, it can only be according to what is revealed in the coming of our Savior into this war. Look again at verse 9, and it goes on to say in that verse, not only not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. And what we are shown there is that God's purpose to save people from their sins is couched in the great truth of His grace. And the saving of the soul flows out of the grace of God. And again, it's not by works. Works and grace are totally opposed one to the other. And you must get a hold of that. If you think that you're going to be in heaven someday as the result of what you have done or what you are doing in terms of religion or church attendance or saying your prayers or reading your Bible or trying to be good, then I want to disabuse you of all that. God says, the Bible says, it's not according to our works. Rather, it is according to the grace of, of our God. And notice what it says again in verse 9, according to His own purpose and grace, given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Isn't that a wonderful little part of the verse? Before there ever was a world, before there ever was a sinner, God had purpose to save because He foresaw, He foreknew that the man He would make would disobey Him, that the humanity that would descend from that first man, namely Adam, would be a fallen humanity, a sinful humanity, a lost humanity. And yet before all of that ever happened, God had purposed that He was going to save men from their sins, and that He is going to do that by the sending of His own dear Son into this world. And therefore, the Lord's birth reveals the eternal and the exclusive and the explicit purpose of God to save people from their sins. It's all by grace. It's all through the mercy and the love of our God. As we think about this matter of the appearing of our Savior, His coming into the world, His birth, like the dawning of a new day, the rising of the sun, we are reminded, therefore, that Jesus Christ came into a world of darkness. That's the implication, that's the inference of this very word. In this sense of things, what kind of a world is this in which we live? What kind of a world was it into which Jesus Christ came? And the Bible is clear. It's clear here. 
And by inference, the Lord is telling us that since the birth of our Savior was like the rising of the sun, the dawning of a new day, that means that He was born into a world of darkness and spiritual ignorance and separation from God. You know, there are many, many verses that bear that out, and I haven't time this evening to take you through verses of Scripture in other places just to verify what I am saying. But my dear friend, take a look around you in this fallen world, and you have all the evidence that the world is in a state of darkness. It was from the moment that man fell. You remember when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, that immediately the bias of their will had changed completely. And instead of seeking light and seeking help, they went among the trees of the garden to try to hide from God. And ever since, men have been running away from God, finding the darkness of this old world as they say it, a place to shelter, a place to hide, a place to conceal themselves. And it reveals to us the darkness that is in the human heart. The shrouded nature that man has within him. No light there, no understanding there, no thought of God there, no desire for God there, but rather the very opposite. Man loves darkness rather than light, the Lord Jesus tells us. He gravitates to the darkness. As I said, he runs to it. He wants to be there. It's in keeping with his nature because his nature is dark. His nature is sinful. And therefore, when the Lord Jesus Christ was born, he came into a world that was filled with darkness and shame, and ignorance of God, and spiritual blindness. Paul tells of that so vividly in Ephesians 4, 17 into 18, where he writes of those very matters that I've mentioned in my remarks a moment ago, ignorance of God, the blindness of the heart. And I want you to understand, sinner, this is your state. You may sit here tonight, and it may well be, and I believe it's certainly true of many in this gathering, in your soul there is an antipathy to light. You don't like to hear preaching. You don't want to be told that you're a sinner. You want your own way. You want your own will to be fulfilled. You have no desire for God. You want sin. Why is that? Because you have a heart that is dark, a heart that is filled with this desire for spiritual and moral darkness, and therefore you go in that direction. And that means that you need a Savior. And here is this revelation given to us by Almighty God, this blessed revelation as we see these words, that something is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, by the birth of our Savior, what is revealed there is clear, it's plain. God has purposed to save men from their sins because men are lost in darkness. And let me tell you something, my dear friend. If you and I both receive what we truly deserved, God would leave us in our natural darkness. He would abandon the whole human race 
And that would be righteous judgment. That would be nothing more than we deserve if God were to leave us. If God left you, just think about it that way, and there was no gospel and no Christ, and He never appeared in this world to do what He came to do, where would you be? What would your future be? Think about it tonight. And let me tell you something. Apart from your sinful life and all that that means, what really would be the awful outcome if God abandoned you in your fallen state and your sinful dark state, the outcome would be, the ultimate outcome would be that you one day would go out into everlasting darkness, outer darkness, into the darkness and the blackness of hell to be lost forevermore. That would be your final end. And yet here you are tonight in the house of God under the preaching of the gospel being presented with the message of our Savior's birth, His appearing, and the revelation that's found in that wonderful fact that Jesus Christ came is that God had purpose to save sinners, and He sent His Son into a world of darkness to accomplish that great goal. And that takes us on then to our next little thought here, not only a revelation, but a reason. And we read it there in verse number 10. It says, "...is now made manifest God's purpose to save, is made manifest or revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ." And when He did appear, what did He do? And it's summed up in the next part of the, of the verse. "...who hath abolished death." And there you have it in a nutshell. Here is a reason why the Lord appeared. He appeared to abolish death. You might say, well, He must have failed because there's death everywhere. And so how do we understand this? When Paul says the Lord came to abolish death and, and there's still death all around us, how do, we, how do we grasp what has been said here? Well, the word abolished, it means this. It doesn't mean to put out of, out of existence. It means to render ineffective. It means to rob of force or to remove the ability that death has to hold people in its power. That word destroy, therefore, is a word that signifies that what death is able to do, Jesus Christ reverses and overcomes and renders, as I say, renders ineffective. And he's talking here specifically, Paul is, about death. Death has been robbed of all its terrible force. Now, why is there death in the world? Well, of course, it's aligned to what I've already said about the world of darkness. If there were no sin, there'd be no darkness. And by the same token, if there were no sin, there would be no death. Death and darkness go together. Darkness and death are twins. They are the product of sin. And therefore, death is the result of sin. Romans 5 verse 12 
Paul writes there a very well-known verse. In fact, one of the most vital verses in the book of Romans. For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, so death hath passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. That verse is magnificent in the sense of what it teaches. It refers there to one man. That man is Adam. You know, worldly men, unregenerate men, men who think they know more than God, they will tell you that they're on the search, they're on the quest to, str- to try to overcome death and remove death and bring about a world where there will be no more death. I mean that. I've been reading about that lately. And they're still at it. And they think that somehow or other they can overcome death and bring about a situation where men will not die. Oh, my friend, the folly of man, the blindness of man, he's doing this as death stares him in the face. He's on his quest to find immortality through his own efforts when all around him people are dying and and are being swept away in one way or another. There's the blindness and the darkness of the human heart revealing itself once again. When all the while, and this is the wonder of it, when all the while there, there is another man who came to undo what the first man had done. And so, again, Romans 5, 12 is all about Adam. By one man, Adam, death came into the world, Paul says there. Sin came and death by sin. But thank God there's another man. And that other man is the last Adam, the Bible calls him. Our Lord Jesus Christ. This again gives you the reason why the Lord ever was born. The first man failed. The first Adam failed. And when he sinned and failed, we sinned and failed in him as our representative because he was acting for all of humanity. You see, there's another man And in various verses in the Bible, you will find Adam and Jesus Christ brought together. That's in Romans 5. As you read on from verse 12, you find there's another Adam. There's another man. You find in 1 Corinthians 15. And you discover in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 the the wonderful statement of the Apostle Paul about this other man. He says, Whereas in Adam all die, even so shall all in Christ be made alive. As by one man came death, he says in that same chapter, by the other man, the Lord Jesus, there came the resurrection. And so the two are brought together. Adam, the first representative of men, the man who failed, the man who fell, the man who brought darkness on the earth, the man who brought death into humanity, the man who disobeyed God and fell and broke the law and suffered the consequences until God stepped into his life and saved him. But then you see there's this other Adam, this other man, and he has come to save sinners by doing all essential 
that is summed up in that little part of this verse, who hath abolished death, rendered it ineffective, as I tell you the word actually means. And what did the Lord do to render death ineffective? And what does that mean for people like us? Well, He rendered death ineffective by His own death. The death of Jesus Christ at the cross, the suffering of our Savior, there He is. He's born in the manger. And you know, as soon as He's born, the evidence is there that He's born to die. There's no place for Him in the inn. He's cast out. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. And that term, that phrase, swaddling clothes, is a reference to the bands that were used to wrap up a corpse. Our Savior was actually swaddled in death clothes because He's born to die. And He begins to suffer. And His sufferings are lifelong. He's despised by men. He's rejected by men. He's vilified. He's mocked. And eventually they take Him and they falsely accuse Him and they nail Him to a tree. And why is He there? Because God has purposed that in Christ Jesus sinners will be saved. And therefore we see this second man, the Lord from heaven, the last Adam, hanging on a tree. The old hymn says, I saw one hanging on a tree in agony and blood who fixed his languid eyes on me as near his cross I stood. O the Lamb, the bleeding Lamb, the Lamb of Mount Calvary, Lamb who died but who liveth again to intercede for me. You see, the death of Jesus Christ was a death of such a nature that as He died, He gave Himself over to death. Death did not take Him. He gave Himself to death. And in giving himself to death, he was actually reaching out, as it were, to lay hold of death and render it powerless by taking the sting that is in the very bosom of, of death and having that sting thrust into his own soul. And as he did all that and experienced all that, in his death, he slew death. He rendered it powerless and ineffective. And you know, you see that in so many ways because when you think of our brother Pete who testified tonight, and you know what happened, Pete McKillen, and happens every true believer when God deals with the soul and that person's drawn to Christ. You know what happened to our brother that night in that mission hall in that gospel meeting? The death that was in his soul was conquered, the spiritual death. He passed from death unto life because Christ has rendered death ineffective. 
And therefore, when a sinner trusts Christ, the first thing that happens is that that spiritual death in that person's life is conquered. And the evidence that it is conquered is that that person then begins to love God, want the will of God, the Word of God, talk to the Lord in prayer, live for the Lord a holy, godly life, serve Him by winning others. And we could keep on going here, couldn't we? But you see what I'm getting at? That's because of the death of Christ. Christ's death makes that impact upon the souls of His people in that they are changed and they are renewed and they become men and women who love the Lord and serve the Lord the rest of their days. And then, of course, the Lord delivers from eternal death. The Bible talks about eternal death over and over again. Or the second death, as we find in Revelation 20, is referred to in that kind of language to indicate that death has an awful hold on men. And when they die, their souls do not cease to exist. Their bodies are laid in the grave, but the soul lives on, and the soul lives on under the power of death and under the judgment of God, and it is immediately found in, the, in, the, in that place called hell, as we find, and we've already comment tonight, there is a place called hell. That is where sinners are going. And my friend, it's from that eternal death that you need to be saved. But because Christ has satisfied the law by His death and removed the sting from death, when a person who trusts in Him dies, lays this world, that soul goes immediately to be with Christ because death, eternal death, has been conquered. But there's a third realm in which death reigns. Only spiritual death and eternal death, but there's physical death. And so what has Christ done with physical death? Christ has also rendered it ineffective. Oh yes, the Christian dies and is buried like everybody else. And people watching on think, well, that's it, or whatever they think. But they think there's really no difference between the saved man or the unsaved man. That person who's a Christian will say, well, he died just like that man who died and he wasn't a Christian or didn't profess to be a Christian, so it's all the same. But my friend, it's not all the same. Because the body of the believer, the death that that body has it no experience in physical death, is one day going to be reversed. And that body will come from that grave. It will rise again totally transformed, as Paul tells us in Philippians, with a body, yes, the same body that was buried, but raised up in glory, and made like unto the Lord's glorious body, and never again subject to pain or death 
Are they effects of sin and the fall that fall upon the human body? That's all now gone, and that body is now reunited with that soul, and that individual will live and reign with Christ forever. My friend, that's what the Lord does with regard to death. He gives spiritual life. He delivers from eternal ruin. And He resurrects the body of the Christian. And all of that is in view in that little part of this verse, who hath abolished death. And so, we notice there is only a revelation here and a reason here as to why Paul writes about the Lord's appearing in these wonderful terms. He has come to abolish death, but in closing tonight, there is a result. And it's at the end of verse number 10. Hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And what you have there in those marvelous words at the end of verse 10 is this fact that Jesus Christ, as a result of coming into the world, according to God's purpose of grace, as a consequence of dying for sinners and delivering them from death in every form, he also, it also results in the fact that He will give them this immortality that is in view in those closing words. And the word immortality means incorruption. And it ties in with what I've already been saying. The child of God is one day going to be given this blessed immortality in its fullest form, in its most glorious form. It belongs to the eternal state, this immortality, in all its fullness. It will take place when the Lord comes again, and He'll bring this all to light when the second appearing takes place, and our Savior comes in His glory, and He resurrects His people, and He gives them life and immortality that will never end. It will be, therefore, a situation where the saints will then receive their final inheritance. This world will be no more as we now know it. God one day is going to change this world. Second Peter 3 tells you that. But the great renovation that's coming, the heavens and the earth, will be changed. And gone will be all the effects of the fall, all the results of sin, all of the consequences of Satan's activity will all be gone, and the saints will live and reign with Jesus Christ forever and ever in the glory that shall be hereafter. And what a result! In that world, that heaven, those heavens and that new earth wherein there will dwell righteousness, purity, no sin, no rebellion, no defiance. Christ will have trampled down forever His enemies, and His people will live and reign with Him in that eternal state See Him in His glory, rejoice in His presence, be with Him forever. How vital, therefore, it is 
that you are saved. That you come to Jesus Christ to obtain from Him this immortality, this consequent immortality that Paul writes about. You see, my dear friend, you're living every day under the threat of death. No peace. There can't be. You're not happy. There's no contentment in your soul. You're ridden with guilt and fear and terror about the future. Be honest. It's all very well to bluster. It's all very well to be on a big show. But how is it when you face something that's a stark reminder of the fact that you're mortal and you're about to pass into eternity and one of these days you will be gone? Then it's different, isn't it? And you feel the terrors of hell come over your soul. You feel the fear that fills your heart. You are being shown that what you need to do is come to Jesus Christ and trust Him in repentance of your sin, turning from it, resting in the Savior, looking away to Him to pardon your sin and deliver you from that sin and give you a new life, give you this blessed life, this immortality in its fullest form and have you with Him throughout the endless ages. You need to seek Jesus Christ. And you need to seek Him now because you have no guarantee tomorrow. The appearing of Jesus Christ, the birth of our Savior, oh, what a miracle. As you've often heard from this pulpit, the miracle of all miracles, where God, the Son, took our humanity in order to fulfill God's purpose of saving sinners, render death effective, ineffective, and bring in life and immortality for all who trust Him. Where are you tonight in your spiritual state? How is it with your soul? My dear friend, it's time to seek the Lord, as I've said. And this is your opportunity. Mr. Church and I are here to help anyone who would like to pursue these matters. Get right with God. Young man, young woman, is it not time for you to turn from your sin and seek the Savior? Older person, you've lived your life up to this moment and you're still lost. And it's not well with your soul. Come to Christ and seek Him. Do not leave this meeting house tonight until you are right with God. Take that step. We'll be glad to see you. Let us bow in prayer. Let's come to an end of our time tonight in the house of the Lord. Let's all bow together quietly and reverently before the Lord as we come
to this moment. Again, I renew that invitation to come and speak with us about these issues, and it will be our joy to help you. And may you seek Christ tonight while he may be found. Father in heaven, bless thy word. We thank thee for the Lord's appearance. When he came forth in Bethlehem and he was seen by the world as just another babe, someone to be despised and rejected. And for that moment, that was his lot. But we thank thee that he came to fulfill God's purpose to save men from their sins. And we rejoice, O Lord, that in his own death he slew death, and he saves from all its power and its consequences. Lord, give sinners a true understanding of that. Convict them of their need, of their sin, and even this night draw them to thy blessed Son. Be with us, we pray. Watch over us in these days. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God, the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all who are thine, both this night and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake.